Welcome to the serialized audiobook of The Starter, Season 3 of the Galactic Football League series, written and performed by Scott Sigler. The Starter is also available as an ebook and as an ad free, unabridged audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com slash the starter. The Starter by Scott Sigler. Book 1. Preseason 2683, Week 1. They came home at night. They came home champions. Quentin stayed in his room aboard the touchback. He was too nervous about the return trip. Wouldn't it be ironic to fight through the war that was his rookie season, win the Tier 2 tournament, and reach Tier 1, then fly back from Earth only to have the team bus crash on the way home? Since he started every intergalactic trip assuming he was going to crash anyway, the concept of such a cruel fate made for a tense flight. He waited. Waited for the punch-out for the touchback to slip into normal space. The ship started to vibrate, shake a little. It's fine, it's fine, just relax. He repeated the familiar mantra in his head, but it didn't help. This was it. He'd die on this stupid ship before he played a single down of Tier 1, before he lived his dream. It's fine, it's fine, it's fine, just relax. He kept his eyes shut. Best not to see it happen. Maybe this time, he wouldn't hurl. It's fine, it's fine, it's fine. The reality wave started cascading over the ship. Just because he didn't see it, didn't mean he couldn't feel it. Quentin's eyes squeezed even tighter, so hard that his upper lip curled. His stomach churned, an oily, queasy feeling that threatened to coax the dinner out of his belly. The feeling of splitting, of spreading, of being several places at once. It pulled at his mind, told the part repeating, it's fine, that that part was completely full of crap, because any sane sentient knew that things were most certainly not fine. And then, it was over. Quentin Barnes opened his left eye, just a little, to see if anything was shimmering, was waving. Everything looked solid. He let his breath out in a long rush, then sprinted for the bathroom as his stomach rebelled. Quentin had just finished brushing his teeth free of the taste of vomit when the computer voice chimed through the room. First shuttle passengers to the landing bay. He spit, then smiled. The first shuttle trip to Ionath City was for key players, for starters, who had established themselves as vital parts of the Kraken's franchise. That list of players included him. He walked out of the bathroom and took one last look around. His few belongings were packed into flight crates. Greedock, the Splithead, owner of the Krakens, was retrofitting all the players' rooms as part of an overall upgrade to the touchback. Sure, Greedock was a gangster, a thug, and a killer, but he took his duties as team owner very seriously. He wanted his players to have facilities that rivaled those of any Tier 1 team. Quentin left his room with a strange sense of anticipation. He would spend the next four weeks planetside. Training, practice, holo-study, all the things needed to prepare for his first Tier 1 game. The next time he saw this room, it would be for the trip to Planet Tower and the season opener against the Isis Ice Storm. He walked down the corridor, 
appreciating the orange walls and the black and white carpet more than ever. He loved his team colors. No matter where his football career might take him, he knew he'd have a permanent place in his heart for the orange and the black. He heard the now-familiar rapid fire of pounding footsteps behind him. Quentin automatically put his back against the wall, making room for the sprinting Sklorno. The Sklorno, it seemed, were always sprinting. A pair of them shot down the corridor. He recognized them, Milford and Denver, two of his fellow rookies from last year. Their big feet hit the carpet hard as they stopped. Quentin Barnes, Quentin Barnes, Quentin Barnes, Denver said. Hey there, Quentin said, in a calm voice, lest he excite them further. When Sklorno got excited, Sklorno drooled. That was never a fun thing. Milford and Denver were among the few Krakens taller than Quentin. Denver stood 8 feet 10 inches tall, just 2 inches shorter than Milford. They both wore their Krakens jerseys. Denver was number 81, Milford number 82. But that was the only clothing that blocked their strange, see-through bodies. Sklorno jersey numbers had to go on the sides, not in front, because their coiled arms stuck out of their chest right where the numbers would ordinarily be placed on a human jersey. The jerseys only covered part of their bodies. On the exposed areas, translucent chitin showed the semi-transparent muscles flexing beneath and clear blood coursing through them like pumping water, all of it supported by black skeletons. Semi-visible internal organs fluttered here and there. Nowhere did they have more muscle than in their thick legs that folded backward like those of a grasshopper. Coarse, black fur jutted out of their knee and ankle joints. The legs supported a slender, back-curving body stock. On top of that body, the strangest part of a sclorno, the head. They each had two raspers, long rolls of skin-covered muscle embedded with thousands of small teeth. Usually, the rasper stayed rolled up behind a thick chin plate, But whenever the ladies talked to Quentin, the raspers tended to hang down like a dog with a three-foot-long double tongue. Above the chin plate sat a small crop of coarse black hairs. Out of that hair jutted four eye stalks. Each stalk moved independently, looking in all directions at once, like curious cobras rising up for the strike. Quentin Barnes, Quentin Barnes, Quentin Barnes, Denver shouted again. We're on first shuttle with you. Quentin nodded and started to say something, but apparently the conversation was over. The two receivers took off on a dead sprint, headed for the shuttle bay. Quentin followed them, but at a slightly more casual pace. The shuttle bay's 50-foot-high dome ceiling held the usual assortment of equipment, machines, and stacked metal crates, everything meticulously arranged and organized. Outside of the players' individual rooms, everything was meticulous and organized, courtesy of Masal the Efficient, the Kraken's team manager. Quentin looked up, looked to the words that floated in the center of the shallow dome. A sentence made of large, holographic letters ran the length of the bay. The glowing letters never moved, never faded, and they were never turned off, even during ship night. They read, The Ionath Krakens are on a collision course with a Tier 1 championship. The only variable is time. The words made Quentin's chest feel all fluttery, stopped his breath short. He'd seen that sign many times during the Tier 2 season, but Coach Hokor the Hookchest had changed the word slightly. Before, it had read, the Ionath Krakens are on a collision course with the Tier 1 birth. The only variable is time. Well, they had turned that dreamy prophecy into a hard-won truth. 
Now Hokor was setting a goal higher, as high as it gets. A Galaxy Bowl championship. A Galactic Football League title. The thought scared Quentin a little, made him wonder if they could live up to such expectations. Scared him, and also thrilled him. He wasn't here to chase mediocrity. He was here to capture glory. He stared at the sign, then nodded. Quentin walked toward the shuttle, which was painted in Kraken's orange and trimmed in black and white. A large Kraken's logo, the iconic reddish-orange eye inside a yellow shield with six white stylized tentacles spreading off behind it, decorated the side. Other first shuttle Krakens filtered into the landing bay. Quentin saw the blue-skinned Don Pine, two-time Galaxy Bowl winner, and now Quentin's backup. Denver and Milford, along with Scarborough and Haywick, the starting Sklorno receivers. Mumo Killowy, the 12-foot-long key defensive tackle that had gone from rookie to starter in one season, just like Quentin had done at the quarterback position. Alexander Michnik and Ibrahim Khomeini, the monstrous, knuckle-dragging, heavy-G defensive ends, each 525 pounds and nearly 7 feet tall. Kilo Yoet, the dominant offensive tackle and seemingly alpha ascension of the Kraken's 17 key players. Third-string quarterback Yitzhak Goldman, who enjoyed first shuttle privileges because he had been born and raised in Ionath City, and as such, he was a local hero. And the big, tattooed, wild-eyed, and semi-sane human middle linebacker, John Tweedy. Standing next to John was Yisud Murphy, the Kraken starting running back by default. Default, because Sood was the only one left on the roster. Starter Mitchell, the machine Fayed, had died and backup Paul Pearson had lost a leg. Yasud and John had become Quentin's closest friends. He worked hard to spend time with everyone on the team, but John and Sood were human. Quentin had spent 19 years of his life being programmed to think that human was the only race that mattered. Logically, he could separate himself from that propaganda, but emotionally, he still felt more comfortable with his own kind. Hey, Sood, Uncle Johnny, Quentin said. John turned, his crazy stare into nothing changing to a smile. Are you ready for some football? Scrolled across his face. John had a subdermal tattoo, thousands of tiny light emitters embedded under his skin. With his cyberlink control, John could dial up any words or phrases that he liked. Quentin was getting used to it, but seeing letters dance across John's face was still a bit disturbing. Q, John said, and held out his fist. Quentin reached out his own for the obligatory fist bump, then did the same for Yasud. Hey, Quentin said to the running back, did you braid your beard? It is called a Persian, big boy, Yasud said, then stroked the eight inches of matted, black, curly beard he'd bound together with a thin, orange string. Orange and black, you, INF style. Quentin smiled and nodded appreciatively. Yasud loved the Krakens just as much as Quentin did. Most of the first shuttle team was there, save for Virak the Mean and Chodo the Bright, two quith warrior outside linebackers. Hey, Uncle Johnny, where's Virak and Chodo? Off doing some work for Greedock, John said. Rumor is they're at Buddha City Station for the heavyweight championship fight. No way, Yasud said. Oh, yep, I got to get on Greedock's good side. Virak and Chodo get all the fun. Fun. That wasn't how Quentin saw it. Before he'd arrived last season. Virak and Shoto had been football players second, gangland thugs first. 
any time they accompanied Greedock, the two were probably involved in something illegal, something that could get them hurt. And if they got hurt, that affected the team. Hopefully nothing would happen. The season was just a few weeks away. In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The shuttle's entire side hung open, lowered via a bottom hinge that turned it into a ramp. Head coach Hokor the Hookchest stood at the top of that ramp. It still struck Quentin as strange that Hokor, a quith leader, was technically part of the same species as Virak and Shoto. Where Virak was six foot two and three hundred and seventy-five pounds, Hokor was only three foot one, probably ninety pounds, if he'd been swimming and his black striped yellow fur was soaked with water. Leaders and warriors alike were bipedal, standing on folded legs that had one segment rising up from the hips to a knee then a foreleg that pointed down, connecting to a long, three-toed foot. Their middle arms had a similar design, upper arm that pointed up and back, then a forearm that pointed down parallel to the upper arm, ending in a thick, three-fingered pincer. Their chests continued up from the middle arms, tapering to a head with a single eye. On either side of and below the eye, a set of pedipalps that ended in dexterous finger-like appendages. The middle hands were for heavy lifting and grunt work, while the pedipalps handled fine skills like art or computers. Hokor wore a tiny little orange and black Kraken's jacket and a tiny little black baseball hat with a Kraken's logo glowing in the bill. He always dressed in team colors. At the base of the ramp stood three Kraken's players, all wearing jerseys that Quentin had never seen before. Kraken's home jerseys were black with orange numbers, Away jerseys were orange with black numbers. These players wore white. White jerseys with orange numbers and letters trimmed in black. Orange sleeves led to black-trimmed orange flashes running down the flanks. Where had he seen these before? It hit him. He'd seen those jerseys in the stands, worn by some of the thousands of fans packing Ionath Stadium. Throwback jerseys. Paul Pearson wore one of the white jerseys, number 31. 
Paul refused to wear a realistic prosthetic lower left leg. Instead, he wore a chromed post that ended in a metallic foot. The leg had been torn off by Yala the Biter, a quith warrior linebacker for the Sky Demolition. Since Paul had lost his leg in combat, as he called it, he wanted the universe to know he'd given his all on the gridiron. Next to Paul stood the key lineman Wen E. Derrett, number 66, a right guard who had hurt his back in the Tier 2 semifinal game against the Texas Earthlings. The injury had proven more severe than anyone thought, forcing the key's retirement. Akanatak, the backup, had also been hurt in that semifinal. Akanatak was still recovering. He wouldn't see the field until the third week of the season. Around 12 feet long, the key body bent at the middle. Six feet of the body stayed parallel to the ground, supported by three pair of legs. The body bent up at the front. Two pair of arms stuck out near the thick neck and head. The head? That was the stuff of nightmares. A row of five equidistant eyes gave the species 360-degree vision. Six leathery lips covered the six black teeth of their hexagonal mouths. Vocal tubes stuck up from the top of the head, making the key look a bit like a human with smooth, short dreadlocks. Next to Wena stood the final white-jerseyed player, another human. Pancho Salzgiver, number 48. Pancho the third tight end on the roster behind Yotaro Kobayashi and Rick Warburg, hadn't played much during the Tier 2 season. Pancho had been with the Krakens for 10 years, an eternity in the brutal world of the GFL. 10 years, a missing leg, a broken back. And then Quentin understood the reason for the special jerseys. Hokor spoke in his small but gravelly voice. He was tiny, even downright cute in his little jacket and little hat. But when he spoke, everybody listened. Greed Octa Splithead cannot be here today, Hokor said. He has business elsewhere, but told me he is proud of all of you. Quentin just hoped that business didn't involve Virak and Shoto playing the role of gangland muscle. Coach Hokor continued. Tomorrow afternoon, I announced that he is throwing us a parade to celebrate our promotion to Tier 1. Then we have a week off then three weeks to prepare for the ISIS ice storm. Right now, it is time to descend to Ionath, a trip that marks the official end of our Tier 2 season. As such, we honor the players that are retiring as Krakens. Hokor's words echoed through the mostly empty shuttle bay, then faded out, leaving silence. Quentin didn't know what to say. He imagined his teammates didn't either. These three players wear white, Hokor said. The white jerseys are the original jerseys the franchise had in the year of its founding, 2662. To wear white is the highest honor the Krakens organization can bestow. Pearson, Wen Ed Derrett, and Salzgiver played hard. They gave everything they had, but all careers must end. Active players, pay your respects to them as you board the shuttle. Quentin watched the Kraken starters filter onto the shuttle, each stopping to say something to the three white-jerseyed, soon-to-be ex-teammates. Quentin watched until he realized he was the only active player standing in the shuttle bay. He walked up to Pearson. Quentin offered his hand, which the running back shook. Pearson was 29 years old, a decade older than Quentin. Years in the league had aged the man. Pearson looked ready for a rest. Sorry you won't be joining us, Quentin said. Gonna be a hell of a year. Paul laughed. I played two seasons in the bigs with the dreadnoughts. You think our Tier 2 season was tough? Good luck, brother.
I hope you do well. Pearson's smirk made it clear he thought he would have the last laugh, that he had been tough enough to last a decade, but Quentin was not. Pearson radiated disdain and jealousy of Quentin's rising star. This whole process made Quentin uncomfortable, and he didn't know why. The chrome of Paul's foot reflected the landing bay lights, streaky flashes visible even though Quentin wasn't looking at it. Gwenna Derrett was next. Quentin stood in front of the monstrous creature, unsure of what to say or do. Gwenna's black eye spot stared blankly. The pink hexagonal mouth twitched, lip flaps hiding the disturbing triangular teeth. Quentin still didn't understand the key all that well. Did Gwenna want to say something? The key forearm lineman reached up his two right arms, then smacked them against his tubular chest. If he had been wearing football armor, the movement would have produced a clack sound, the key equivalent of saying, I will go to war with you. The gesture hit Quentin much harder than Paul's condescension. Somewhere during the season, the key had accepted Quentin as a fellow warrior. He'd led them into battle, led them to victory, fighting and winning were all that seemed to matter to the key. Quentin swallowed the lump in his throat, then brought up his right fist and pounded it twice against his chest. That was all that needed to be said. He finished with Pancho, who stood just outside the shuttle door. Quentin, you little rascal, I'm going to miss you this year. You and all the shuckers trying to tackle me, Quentin said, laughing that Pancho had called him little. Quentin had two inches and more than a few pounds on the man. It was great to be your teammate, Q, Pancho said. Let me be an old fart and give you some unsolicited advice, cool? Quentin rolled his eyes. Sure, Pops, go ahead. Pro football is a marathon, not a sprint. Just remember that. Paul and I both made it ten years, which is damn near impossible. We were good players. You are a great one. If you last ten years, you'll rewrite every record in the league. Just ten? At that point, I'll just be getting warmed up. Pancho smiled and nodded. I hope so, Q. Have a great season. Oh, hey, you ever been fishing? Quentin shook his head. If you need a break, just let me know. I'm heading back to Earth, to a little town in a place called Michigan. Anytime you need to get away from it, you call me. Where Paul's well-wishing had reeked of bitterness, Pancho's rang with genuine affection. The tight end raised his right fist and banged his chest twice. Quentin did the same, then turned and boarded the shuttle. All that touchy-feely emotional stuff was fine and good, but those three players just creeped him out. Correction, those three former players. All of a sudden, Quentin had to admit he didn't want to be anywhere near them. It was stupid to feel that way, he knew, but those three retired players suddenly seemed almost diseased. Quentin found a human-sized seat next to Haywick, the Sklorno receiver. He sat and buckled in. She trembled a little, but not as bad as Denver or Milford would have done. Quentin was still trying to deal with the fact that the Sklorno now worshipped him like some kind of false idol. Haywick was clearly in awe of Quentin, although apparently she wasn't an official member of the Church of Quentin Barnes, or the COQB as they called it. He braced himself as the landing bay catapult tossed the shuttle out into the void. He stared out of viewport, taking in the void star-speckled blackness. The shuttle floated for a few minutes until it cleared the touchback, then the engines kicked in. The shuttle banked. As it came around, 
The planet Ionath slid into view. Red, cracked, cratered. From this far up, Ionath was an image of death, of the folly of constant war, of how things were before the Kretorakians took over. For all the authoritarian rule of the bats, at least they kept the peace. A chime sounded. Quentin automatically looked up to the holographic icons floating near the roof. Graphics showed an unbuckled seatbelt, and next to it, simple pictures of Walking Key, Humans, Quith, and Sklorno. The heavy G players thought the signs were racist, because they showed the rough dimensions of a normal G human. Quentin thought that was ridiculous. Two arms, two legs, a body, and a head were two arms, two legs, a body, and a head. You didn't hear the Quith complaining about their icon, despite the drastic size difference between leaders, warriors, and workers. He unbuckled, then walked to one of the shuttle's larger viewports. Only a few of the Kraken's players on board moved within the cramped space. Some of the vets had seen the orbital approach so many times they were no longer impressed. Mitchnik and Kameni were among those, apparently. That, or they were too busy eating the huge sandwiches sitting in their laps. The only movement came from Shizzle, the team's translator and lone Kretorakian. Shizzle fluttered to keep his balance from his perch on Kiloyoet's shoulder. Quentin stared out the viewport, taking in the ruined planet. He wondered if there might be messages waiting for him when he reached the surface. Maybe his father had seen his game against the Earthlings a week ago. The T2 tourney didn't get the ratings of Tier 1, but it was still broadcast galaxy-wide. Maybe his mother had seen a newscast, seen Quentin's now-adult face, and instantly recognized her baby boy. Maybe. Or maybe he'd never hear from either of them. A heavy hand hit his shoulder, hit and held. Quentin winced. His shoulder still hurt from the game against the Earthlings a week earlier. The strong hand shook him, the friendly, if painful, grasp of John Tweedy. What's up, Q? I know you got the tar knocked out of you by those Tex linebackers, but come on, Trooper, you should be happy. You brought us into Tier 1, man. You get a week off. Maybe now you can do something with your money, like get an apartment or something. Hey, hey, maybe you can live near me. We could be shucking neighbors, brother. When Quentin didn't respond, the words, turn that frown upside down, scrolled across John's face tattoo. Come on, Killer Q. What's got that mopey sad boy look on your face? It's just... Ah, never mind. I don't want to talk about it. Come on, Trooper. Uncle Johnny's been in the GFL five years. Another three in the lower leagues. All that time trying to get to Tier 1. It's been my dream, Q. And that dream came true because of you. What's eating you? You need a girl? You want to go out and paint the town orange? No, that's not... Well, yeah, we should go out and hit the town, but that's not what I mean. This Tier 1 stuff is a big deal. I just wish my parents could see it. Why aren't they here? Your dad have attitude? You want me to whip your pop's ass? Because I will whip your pop's ass, I assure you. Quentin laughed. He didn't feel like laughing, but John's always-on intensity could make anything seem funny. I don't know where they are, John. I don't even know if they're alive. They vanished when I was real little. Happens a lot in the purest nation. Tweedy looked around behind him to the left, then to the right, then to the left again. His eyes lingered on Shizzle who was farther back in the small shuttle, still perched on Kiloyoet's shoulder. Tweedy leaned in close to Quentin and spoke in a whisper. Hey, Q, you told anybody about this? Quentin shook his head. No, not really. Warburg knows some of the ex-Nashalites in I.F. City, but I guess that's about it. 
Why? Tweedy did the left-right-left look again, the move probably drawing more attention to him than if he had just talked quietly. Listen, you might not want to make your situation public, you know? That's the kind of thing Greedock can use against you. Why would Greedock use it against me? I'm his quarterback. John shook his head slowly, as if he couldn't believe he was looking at someone so stupid. The funny thing was that John wasn't the sharpest laser in the kit, but he was so sure of himself and had such conviction that when he thought you were dumb, you actually felt a little dumb, even if you knew you were right. You challenged Greedock, John said. You challenged his authority and won. You know what that means? Don't they have crime bosses on McCovey? Quentin thought of Stedmar Osborne and nodded. Stedmar was the owner of the McCovey Raiders, Quentin's Tier 3 team back in the purest nation. Stedmar was not a man to be trifled with. Yeah, Quentin said. All teams are owned by gangsters, I know that. You know that, but you don't know-know that. You get away with stuff because you win games. Gangsters like to win. Winning makes money, but the most important thing is respect and control. You challenged Greedock's authority. He's not going to forget that, Killer Q. Quentin hadn't thought about it that way until this moment. Don Pine had owed millions to Mopook the Sneaky, a gangster that forced Pine to shave points, even throw games outright. Quentin had orchestrated an effort to pay off Don's debt. When Greedock had discovered Pine's betrayal, he wanted to kill the man. Quentin threatened to walk away from the Krakens if Greedock hurt Pine in any way. Quentin had reacted on instinct, done what he had to do for the good of the team, never really connecting the dots that there could be long-term consequences for those actions. Anyway, John said, Greedock's not going to have you whacked. Not yet, at least. But you don't want to give him any more leverage over you, right? Quentin nodded. Well, then how do I go about finding my parents? We have the season coming up. It's not like I can go out and look for them. John did the left-right-left look again, then leaned in. The words, I know a guy, scrolled across his forehead in small letters. Don't you worry about it, Q. Uncle Johnny Boy, the Minister of Awesome, will hook you up. You put it out of your head for now. John turned and walked away, leaving Quentin alone at the viewport. The shuttle rattled as it entered INF's atmosphere. Quentin gripped one of the many hand rings lining the shuttle. He looked out at what he now called home. A Sklorno saturation bombing 124 years earlier had wiped the planet clean of all advanced life. Only bacteria had remained and not much of that. Ionath had remained lifeless, damn near sterile, until the Quith Concordia colonized it. The Quith seemed immune to the same radiation that killed every other known sentient in the galaxy. The Quith were in the middle of a centuries-long process of transforming the planet. Much of Ionath still looked lifeless, lined with massive craters and cracks, but those scars were also blurring under an ever-increasing carpet of orange, red, and yellow plants. The shuttle approached Ionath City. Built in the middle of a ten-mile-wide bomb crater, Ionath City's clear dome glowed like a torch lit up by the lights of thousands of buildings beneath. As the shuttle drew closer to the dome, Quentin stared in amazement as those lights changed. The white, blue, red, and yellow glow of a bustling nighttime cityscape steadily blinked off as a new color steadily blinked on. That color was orange. The dome metropolis of Ionath City flickered, blinked, and in a span of 10 or 15 seconds, changed into a gleaming black jewel glittering with millions of glowing orange facets. The orange and the black. Ionath City 
welcomed its warriors home. The pilot dove straight for the huge dome, which obligingly disintegrated a temporary, shuttle-sized hole. The circular roads of Ionath City seemed to guide them in like the concentric rings of a bullseye. Straight streets dissected 16 equivalent sectors, all intersecting at the city center. Intersecting at the home of the Krakens. In Ionath City, all roads led to the football stadium. The shuttle angled closer. Quentin saw more lights flare up, the sides of buildings coming to life with skyscraper-high motion clips of the orange and black-clad Kraken's players. Scarborough, hauling in a pass. Alexander Michnik sacking a quarterback. Quentin running through the line, a sweat-dripping snarl splayed across his face. Virak the mean, black and red blood streaking his jersey, pointing out a gap just before the snap of the ball. And then, one that made Quentin's soul hurt. Number 47. Mitchell, the machine fayed, standing over the crumpled, purple-and-white clad form of Yala the Biter. After Yala had ripped off Paul Pearson's leg, Fayed had gone headhunting for the linebacker and crushed him in a highlight reel hit. Quentin blinked back tears for his dead friend. Reaching Tier 1 had been the machine's ultimate dream. He had died just two games shy of seeing that become a reality. Sixty-foot-tall motion clips of so many players, orange and black giants making the nighttime skyline dance with life. So many Krakens, but the changing images featured one more than all the others combined. Hey, Zach, Quentin called out. You seeing this? Yitzhak Goldman quickly walked over to stand next to Quentin. The third-string quarterback looked out the window, then took a deep breath that exhaled into a smile saturating every iota of his face. Ah, it's good to be home, Yitzhak said loudly. Nothing quite like being welcomed home by towering visions of, well, of me. All the players on the shuttle laughed, even the mostly humorless Michnik and Khomeini. INF City residents adored Yitzhak, even if most of them didn't really understand he was a third-string quarterback and fairly insignificant to the team's success. That lack of knowledge didn't change the fact that businesses wanted Yitzhak's name associated with their companies, wanted his picture on their products. He was the face of Junkie Jin, the dashboard voice of Hyundai Gravlimos, and the chisel-chinned image of Farouk Outdoor's popular anti-rad suits that let the adventurous non-quith species explore the vast planet. Compared to the advertising money he earned, Yitzhak's actual salary was probably insignificant. The shuttle slowed as it approached the roof of the Kraken's building and landed feather light. The side door lowered. Quentin and the others started filing down the ramp, ready for the now-familiar customs check. While the Quith Concordia was independent of Kretorakian control, GFL rules still applied to every team. Team buses had diplomatic immunity. GFL players could not be searched or detained. This had been implemented to prevent local system police from harassing players based on species bias. For a team to compete, it had to have players from the main races. Immunity allowed teams to move across systems without fear that some of their players would be arrested, possibly even killed. But just because the players themselves couldn't be detained didn't mean the Kretorakians would allow team buses to be a conduit for weapons or explosives that could be used against the ruling empire. The shuttle had to be searched every time it landed. Quentin walked out. 
A red line glowed on the roof. He dutifully took his place on that line, John Tweedy on his right, Scarborough on his left. They all stood, quietly waiting, as a white-uniformed, blue-furred quith leader walked up and down the 12-player line. The leader's middle arms held something behind his back. Two white-uniformed workers slid a grav cart into the shuttle. I am Kotop the Observer, the leader said. I am duly appointed by the Galactic Football League to inspect your shuttle. Quentin sighed. He knew who Kotop was. Everyone knew who Kotop was because Kotop inspected the shuttle every time it landed. The little leader insisted on formally identifying himself. Kotop always seemed annoyed that the players were probably using their personal immunity to smuggle in information, drugs, or other contraband. The unwritten rule was that whatever a player could carry on his person, as long as it wasn't a weapon, remained totally above the law. Kotop did little to hide his disdain of athletes. He usually had something derisive to say. Look at all of you, Kotop said. The conquering heroes return. Quentin expected Kotop's usual lecture on morals, but this time he sounded different. John took a step forward and stood with rigid, mock attention. Mr. Kotop Leader Shamakath, sir, may I ask what is on your mind, Mr. Kotop Leader Shamakath, sir? You seem very happy. I'm always happy, Kotop said. The Krakens players laughed. John stepped back in the line. The two white-uniformed workers pushed their grav sled out of the shuttle. No explosives, no weapons, one of them said to Kotop. Excellent, Kotop said. I expected nothing less of such fine representatives of Ionath. The players looked at each other, confused. Uh, Kotop, my tip-top, John said. Aren't you going to tell us that we're delinquents that will someday wind up dead or in jail as soon as football is finished with us? Not tonight, Kotop said. He brought his hands out from behind his back. They were holding a little black baseball hat, which he pulled onto his head. The hat showed the Krakens logo on the bill. Across the brim, it read, Ionath Krakens, 2682 Tier 2 Champions. Tonight, Kotop said. Tonight, I am just a fan, like every being in this city. Congratulations, sentience, and welcome home. The team laughed and whooped at the unexpected support. They walked across the roof to ride elevators down to their respective quarters, or to cars and taxis. Quentin, however, walked to the roof's far side. He stood there, breathing slowly, staring out at an entire city lit up in orange lights, a city alive with the moving, silent images of his teammates, his friends. Some of the towering buildings showed action clips of Quentin, Jersey torn and splattered with blood, fighting for victory against the Sky Demolition, the Wittok Pioneers, the Texas Earthlings. He looked everywhere, trying to take it all in, trying to capture everything and forever burn it into his brain. Not that long ago, he'd been an orphan, a low-wage miner on an unknown colony in a backwater system. Now, now his image covered towering skyscrapers. Now he was a hero. He would never, ever forget this moment.
You have been listening to The Starter, Season 3 of the Galactic Football League Series. Written and performed by Scott Sigler. Produced by Ariok Morningstar with post-production by Steve Rickyberg. For more information on Scott and more free stories, go to scottsigler.com. Theme music is the song The Kids Are Coming For You by the band Super Weapon. Superweaponband.com. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.